What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. On This Week in FCPA, Goldman Sachs settles its FCPA enforcement action. We look at articles from Tom Fox, Mike Volkov, and Matt Kelly. The Beam Centauri FCPA enforcement action by Harry Casson. What can investigators learn from the Wirecard scandal? Lloydette Baimaro tells us on the FCPA blog. TLI president sentenced to 48 months in prison by Dylan Tokar in the Wall Street Journal. Why the exit interview is such a useful exercise by Jonathan Marks. It's Halloween. What are your corporate skeletons by Michael Toby? Experian to appeal ICO fine by Jacqueline Jager in the Compliance Week. And finally, channeling your inner Sherlock Holmes to determine UBOs by Alia Noor on the ExpertsLeague.com. We'll take a look at some podcasts. We'll take a look at some webinars. All this and more on This Week in FCPA, Episode 228, The Countdown to the November 3rd Elections. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitor himself, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, Episode 228, for the week ending October 30, 2020, The Countdown to November 3 edition. Jay, the whole world is watching, and they're watching not for Halloween, but for the U.S. election. But we had a plethora of ethics and compliance stories this week. Um, so should we hit it? We should hit it and talk about my favorite brown liquor. Well, number one is number one of all time, Goldman Sachs. And it settled uh, late last week. So we were able to squeeze it in to last week's. But the commentariat is out in full force this week. Uh, including uh, yours truly, the Compliance Evangelist, Mike Volkoff, Matt Kelly, uh, Compliance into the Weeds. We had an emergency Everything Compliance video podcast that I would note has nearly 2,000 downloads. Very impressive for our first video uh, podcast. And uh, lots of different ways to slice and dice this. I know you, you've been, you're, you and your affiliated monitor colleagues have been looking at this uh, from a variety of angles. Um, I guess maybe the two or three things that struck me uh, in writing my podcast series, Jay, uh, are the following. Um, obviously, one, the massive nature of of the total and utter failure. You had failures uh, at the bottom. You had failures in the middle. You had failures at the top. You had control overrides. You had a, a perverse culture, obviously. Um the uh, the second thing is uh, compliance within Goldman got kind of a bad shake because uh, Jay Lowe, the villain, if there is one in this, uh, the top villain, I should say, he um, was sponsored by a private wealth uh, client of uh, Goldman Sachs, two or th- at least two and perhaps three or four times, and each time compliance rejected him because they couldn't determine the source of his wealth. And that was done by uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, Malaysia, or their Asian 
compliance function. It's not clear from the settlement documents if compliance reported up to their regional hubs or if they reported to compliance in the corporate office in New York. But um, compliance worked, and, and it worked forcibly, forcefully when it came to J-Lo. Where it didn't work was, of course, on the deal side. A part of that was the control override. But part of it was, and this is the criticism that I thought was a little unfair, um, but it's a, it's a big lesson learned. And that is that uh, the DOJ and a variety of regulators criticized Goldman corporate compliance for accepting at face value what they were told by the deal guys. And that came out uh, just under two years ago um, when the Timothy Leisner indictment and Roger Ng uh, indictment was released. And at first I thought, well, gosh, you know, you can't even depend on your own co-workers from lying to you. Well, the answer is you have to channel your inner Ronnie Reagan. Trust but verify. And even if a co-worker tells you something. And I actually used that in the last week when uh, uh, that situation came up for a client uh, where a business guy had uh, said said something was mandated by the uh, the local um, state-owned enterprise. And I emailed back that, well, you know, I've worked in that country since 04, and I've never heard that. It would be really helpful if he would send me the regulation so that we could put that in the records to show that's why we did what we did. So, um, you know, trust but verify uh, is is a big lesson. Um, and then it's it's just spectacular the the dollars involved here. Goldman uh, made nearly uh, just over six hundred million in profits, but over five point five billion in fines and penalties. So uh, that's obviously more than a rounding error. Although in the Rosen household, you know, five point five billion. What's five point five B here or there? You know, so. Maybe just, you know, when you're from New Hampshire, uh, you move the decimal point to the left quite a bit. Just happy to be here. But um, uh, next, uh, we got a scoop from Harry Casson at the FCPA blog. It says <laughs> just that the DOJ finds uncooperative Beam Suntory 19.6 million with an M for FCPA offenses. And uh, I want to let you know that I'm not under the Hatch Act, so I can say that Jim Beam White Label is the bourbon of choice here at the Rosen household. But we will drink Jack Daniels if we can mix it with Coca-Cola. So uh, the Chicago-based spirits maker Beam Centauri agreed Thursday to pay the Department of Justice $19.6 million to resolve FCPA charges for improper payments to its Indian subsidiary. The company entered into a three-year deferred prosecution agreement with the Department of Justice to settle charges that it conspired to violate anti-bribery internal controls. And I know you all are asking, did they get a monitor? To Trump administration, no monitors are required. According to the DOJ, Beam paid bribes to the Indian government from, get this, 2006 to 2012, mostly through third-party promoters and distributors to secure business at government-controlled depots and stores. The scheme included three high-level Beam executives, including one in the legal department. According to the DOJ, Beam was cautioned by outside advisors regarding the need to implement sufficient internal controls relating to risks associated with improper activities 
by third parties at the time of the conduct being rather at the time of the misconduct being lacked an effective program. In one instance, Beam paid an Indian official $18,000 to approve a bottling license. According to the DOJ, the company failed to fully cooperate with its investigation and didn't accept responsibility for several years. Two years ago in July, Beam paid the SEC $18.2 million to settle related charges without admitting or denying allegations. The SEC said in 2018 that the company also cooperated by voluntarily producing documents, summarizing factual findings, translating numerous key documents. But in Tuesday's resolution, the DOJ said that it wasn't crediting any part of Beam's settlement with the SEC because Beam did not seek to coordinate a parallel resolution. Although the DOJ said in the DPA that it gave partial credit for cooperating for cooperation during the investigation, it also said that BM Centauri didn't receive full credit for its cooperation due to inconsistent and at times inadequate cooperation. Beam first disclosed this, this FCPA investigation in November 2012, so this one was a long time in the coming. So, Jay, uh, next up, we had a uh, interesting article from uh, someone who's become a, a kind of a regular commentator now on the FCPA blog, Lodette by Myro, uh, writing in England, and she took a look at Wirecard really not from the, the background or um, kind of the fraud angle, but what an investigator could learn. And so I thought that was an interesting uh, way to look at this. She had four points for investigators, um, compliance professionals, and lawyers. So, um, and and really these uh, are useful for any investigation. So number one, look for a personnel leak. If you have a steady trickle of staff leaving in legal, legal and compliance or finance, uh, that probably means something askance is going on and people don't want to be a part of it. Number two, stay curious. I think curiosity is something that's uh, well-suited uh, for both lawyers and compliance, at least those who want to get ahead. And the same should be true for uh, investigators. Three, no shortcuts. And this uh, is really something anyone uh, who has I've ever heard give a uh, any kind of talk or presentation on investigations is uh, you have to know the documents better than the witnesses do, and you have to be fully prepared um, for really anything that's thrown at you. There are no shortcuts. And then finally, take the bird eye, bird's eye view. And um, as uh, an investigation's progress progress, it could become more complicated. As new lines of inquiry are developed, the pressure to deliver is going to be um, certainly uh, something that management puts on you, and you have to keep perspective uh, on going forward. So uh, some interesting lessons. You know, um, your colleague, Mikhail Ryder, Gordon, and I are doing a uh, deep dive podcast series into Wirecard, but we didn't look at it really from this angle. So it's interesting that uh, Lloydette can look at this and really draw these um, uh, lessons learned for the investigator, Jay. Thanks, Tom. Next up, we've got something from Dylan Tokar at the Risk and Compliance Journal at the Wall Street Journal. Former transportation executive sentenced to four years in prison. A former president of a Maryland transportation company was sentenced to four years in federal prison for participating in a scheme to bribe an official at a Russian nuclear energy company. 
Mark Lambert, 57, was sentenced by a federal judge in Greenbelt, Maryland. He also was ordered to serve three years of supervised release and pay a $20,000 fine. The former transportation logistics executive sentence was handed down nearly a year after he was convicted in November last year of various counts of violating the FCPA, including wire fraud and conspiracy charges. In sentencing Mr. Lambert, the district district judge Theodore Chuang said he had taken into account the executive's health condition and risks posed by a coronavirus pandemic. This in light of the fact that Mr. Lambert suffered a near-fatal heart attack in 2014. Mr. Lambert will not be required to report to his prison sentence until until February of next year, a measure that the judge said he had applied to others convicted in the district to avoid the risk of COVID infection. Still, he found the substance of Mr. Lambert's crimes were serious enough to warrant sentence well beyond the sentence of home confinement. It's the type of offense that may seem like the cost of doing business, but it does run contrary to the values of our country, the judge said. Federal prosecutors had asked the judge to impose a sentence of more than 12 years. Mr. Lambert participated in a scheme to bribe a Russian official at a subsidiary of Russia's State Atomic Energy Corporation, the country's sole supplier and exporter of uranium. The official, Vadim Mekarim, in 2015 pleaded guilty in U.S. to conspiring to commit money laundering. Mr. Lambert's former co-president, Darren Condry, also pleaded guilty to conspiracy to violate the FCPA. So, Jay, next up, we had another kind of practice pointer, uh, but this time from Jonathan Marks. And he takes a look at the exit interview. The um, exit interview is an underutilized tool, I think, from the compliance perspective. Um, This is for, uh, I I think it's appropriate both for employees who've been uh, involuntarily leaving, uh, those leaving to pursue other opportunities, those leaving to spend more time with their families, and those leaving for better jobs. But the bottom line is, do you know why your employees are leaving? The um, uh, Jonathan gives some, some key tips or key steps. You have to keep it professional. You must do it with dignity. You need to try and do it quickly. You need to listen, and you need to specifically ask about uh, questionable activities or legal questions. As with everything Jonathan posts, he actually lists sample interview questions. And this is a great way for you as um, a compliance practitioner to learn, not only did did the leavee, the employee leaving, um, see anything or hear anything, but really learn about the culture. And I know that's something that you and your affiliated monitors team talk about a lot is culture and how do you assess culture. But this is a great way for you to get, uh, in many ways, a very honest uh, report on corporate culture uh, from someone who's not going to have a stake in the game. So the exit interview can be not only a useful exercise, but a very uh, powerful tool. So, Jay, uh, in addition to the upcoming presidential election, uh, we're recording this, um, or we'll post, rather, the day before Halloween. So we thought we would have a Halloween theme. What do you see Halloween-wise um, for our audience. Well, we're asking the question, it's Halloween. What are your corporate skeletons? Uh, this comes to us from Michael Toby from uh, the Corporate Compliance Insights. 
And there is a real benefit to dealing proactively with your organization's past transgressions. Michael Toby discusses how leaders should respond when their company's skeletons see the light of day. Once organizations could mostly be concerned about newly developing misconduct and shortcomings and failures, but times are a changing and errors deep in a country and a company can prove to be destructive to brand names and leaders' well-being. In Perils of the Past, What Companies Should Know About Their Histories and How to Manage Them, a 2020 survey was conducted by Green Target, a market intelligence company. The survey was commissioned by the History Factory and researched racial injustice, financial improprieties, sex or gender discrimination, supporting potentially divisive social or political causes and environment. 76% of the C-suite executives said they knew about practices in their companies, but that might conflict with today's ethics and compliance standards. But only 26% of those same executives said they were prepared if those actions were suddenly to come to light. The findings reveal that there are clear, dangerous blind spots for executives in the organizations they lead. They don't understand how investors and customers react to past events that conflict with today's ethics and standards. As we said, the times they're changing and we have shifting standards. Ethical leadership, self-awareness, compassion, and governance are not always implemented successfully. It's been seen by some figurative bad actors as optional and secondary to business objectives or personal preference. Those deficiencies are becoming less tolerated and invite heated discussions and reactions and attacks. The embrace of the ESG movement, environmental, social, and corporate governance by companies is clearly taking hold and here to say. There was a lot of speculation on the new purpose articulated last year by the Business Roundtable, and the commitments that companies have made to become more socially responsible. Whatever the motivation, whether it's improved morality, new societal expectation, or fear, it appears the raised standards of philosophies, morals, and conduct are now evolving. That also means facing humbly, communicating wrongdoing, not only today's, but in years well past. So how do you manage a crisis? To aid in crisis prevention, crisis management, and better managing risk, organizational leadership should ask itself smart, bold, difficult questions with humility. And here's the kicker. You need to listen to the answers. Executives should reach out to their archivists and historians and ask, what have we done in the past that I don't know about that is less positive? What could be damaging to our reputation and inconsistent with how we live our values in today's world? And companies don't like looking for bad news, but better safe than sorry. Over 80% of the company's value of an S&P 500 company is in intangible assets, including IP and reputation, according to the History Factory. As errors or mistreatment in a company's past are unearthed, ownership, communication, and immediate strong making of amends is expected. It's the wisest track the one to earn respect and protect or restore reputation while exhibiting and practice with character, quality governance as a core value instead of a core narrative. The uh, This story comes to us from Jacqueline Jagger uh, over at Compliance Week and it involves Experian. Uh, Experian is one of the triumvirate of uh, credit rating agencies. You probably remember Equifax and TransUnion and the uh, ICO uh, in England, the regulatory body, 
uh, had to step in and uh, assess a penalty against Experian, although penalty, it was not a monetary fine. And it was for having a substandard compliance program. And the ICO said, although experience made progress in improving compliance, it did not go far enough. Experian did not accept that they were required to make changes set out by the ICO and as such were not prepared to issue privacy information directly to individuals or cease the use of credit reference data for direct marketing purposes. So what's really interesting about this, Jay, is the ICO did not impose a fine, yet Experian is appealing this. So you have the anomaly that the regulatory body says your compliance program is substandard and insufficient, and you don't work to remedy that. You say, nah, 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 you can't make us do it. Now, you're the father of two teenage girls. Or I don't, are they teenagers yet? PD close. But they have been younger, and uh, they may have said that, before, because I know my daughter said that, nah, 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 you can't make me do that. Well, guess what, honey? I'm dad. And that brings certain privileges. Now, at some point in the teen years, that ends, and I have to acknowledge that. Nevertheless, if the ICO says improve your compliance program, you know, you might just want to improve your compliance program because it's sure going to make Exterian look bad, uh, particularly with a no fine. It's just inane to me that they would, uh, they would do this. But, um, Corporations have done other inane things before. and They're pretty darn close. They may do it in the future, Jay. So here's the last uh, story that we're looking at before we move on to podcast. Uh, this comes to us from Alia Noor at theexpertsleague.com, which is a website in the UAE that we've been far following. And I've got an upcoming series on monitoring uh, that's going to come in the next few weeks. Uh, so Tom loves Sherlock Holmes and mysteries. So this article is entitled "Personify Sherlock Holmes: The Crucial Importance of Discerning the Ultimate Beneficial Owner." One of the big challenges in discerning whether money laundering is taking place is finding out who the ultimate beneficial owner is within a complicated company structure. As a compliance professional, you need to personify Sherlock Holmes and trace back all positive structures and transactions. It's good to know that there are tools to enlighten you in this important quest. Compliance requirements are continuously evolving, with new anti-money laundering acts being passed every year. The onus is on businesses of all sizes to keep pace with the ever-changing regulatory landscape. So who is the ultimate beneficial owner? Ultimate beneficial owner, UBO term, originated from the Securities Act of 1933 and has taken on an increasingly important role in the fight against terrorism and money laundering. UBO refers to the persons or entities or the ultimate beneficiary of a company. UBO also refers to situations in which ownership or control are exercised through a chain of ownership and means other than direct control. The reason why UBO has grown in importance is because malicious actors, such as terrorists, narcotics dealers, and others, increasingly try to obfuscate their identity through the use of legal entities. In the case of legal entities, the UBO holds at least 25% of the entity's capital or holds at least 25% of the voting rights 
or is the beneficiary of at least 25% of the entity's capital. As a compliance professional, you need to perform a beneficial ownership risk assessment and keep your information up to date. Increasing regulations demand that you know who really controls the company and the companies need to ensure to achieve private transparency. It's a serious mistake to formulate theories before facts are known. Without meaning to, we started to distort the facts to adapt to the theories instead of formulating theories and fit the facts. Thus said Sir Arthur Conan Doyle as Sherlock Holmes. So, Jay, this week on uh, 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, we concluded the month of business ventures. And I should note that this podcast series is sponsored by Affiliated Monitors. On Monday, we took a look at um, franchise or liability. Tuesday, franchise or compliance. On Wednesday, it was following the money through distributors. Uh, Thursday, distributor liability, and Friday, why business ventures are different than third parties. 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program has its own iTunes channel, so if you want to binge out, uh, you can uh, listen to all the episodes there. Uh, Next week, our good friends at K2Fin, K2 Intelligence Fin, have a webinar highlighting scenarios in which investigative due diligence can help uncover areas of risk and opportunities in the wake of COVID-19. So we've linked to that in the show notes. And then uh, why don't you tell us about the next one? Yeah, this one's really uh, sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, our colleagues from the Great Women in Compliance podcast, Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine, uh, have a new book out called Sending the Elevator Back Down. And their publisher, uh, Sarah Haddon at CCI is having a virtual book launch for them. It will be next Thursday, November 5th, 4.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, there's a link to get an invite and follow in the show notes. And we suggest that it'd be a great time to get together, raise a glass, celebrate Mary and Lisa and all the great women in compliance. So uh, we are at the end of the podcast And uh, we'd like to thank all Americans who have gone out and exercised their constitutional duty to vote. We have a large number of folks who have gotten in before actual uh, election day. And it will be very interesting to see how things shake out in the next several days and the weeks. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the voice of compliance and the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 228 for the week ending October 30th, the countdown to November 3rd. Uh, we hope that you will be safe, that you will be healthy, and uh, we look forward to speaking to you next week and this week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again, and we look forward to visiting with you again.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.